0: Will you please turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah 40. We'll read from verse 12 to the end of the chapter. Before we turn to our sermon text in Acts 17. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? And closed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult, and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing, an emptiness. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing, and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted. Scarcely sown. Scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth. When he blows on them. And they wither. And the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me. That I should be like him. Says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high. And see who created these. He who brings out their host by number. Calling them all by name. By the greatness of his might and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint and to him who has no might He increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Amen. Now let's turn to Acts chapter 17. I'll start reading at verse 15 for context. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor has he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom... Also were Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Amen. You may be seated. John Calvin famously wrote that man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. It's a clever word picture. Remember, of course, that he was writing before the Industrial Revolution. And so, when you hear factory of idols, uh, don't think like smokestacks and machinery kind of whirring and churning out little statues in kind of an an automatic, impersonal kind of way. This was back in the day when things were not mass-produced like that by machines. They were handmade by craftsmen. It deepens that image, doesn't it, if you've heard it before? Our idols, our idols, uh, we lovingly create them for ourselves in a very personal way. They're handmade. And maybe that's why it's so hard sometimes for us to let them go. Um, But if we could risk pressing the word picture just a little bit farther, uh, farther, I'm I'm quite sure, than Calvin intended when he wrote that phrase. Um, Think about this. What are the raw materials? that those idols are made out of in those idol factories of our hearts where we are carefully piecing those things together, those things that we choose to count on for protection and prosperity and pleasure. What ingredients are we using? What is the stuff out of which all of those useless objects of our attention and our affection are made? those things that cost us everything but gain us nothing? What are they made out of? Well, the answer that that Paul gives in this chapter is that the raw material for those idols is actually the truth. It's the revelation of God. He's built into our hearts, built into the world. It's inescapable. It's there all the time, right in front of us. It's just when we get our hands on it, goes into that idol factory. It comes out terribly marred and distorted, almost beyond recognition. And so Paul's task is in this passage is sort of to reverse engineer what's come out of the idol factories of Athens and show the people that the very idolatry that they produced itself stands upon the truth of God that they're denying through their false worship. Let's uh, consider all this a little bit more thoroughly um, by looking at this uh, famous visit to Athens in three parts this morning. First is going to be an idol-loving culture, verses 16 to 21. Second is going to be a point of contact, verses 22 to 28. And then third, an unavoidable command. Verses 29 to 34. An idol-loving culture, a point of contact, and an unavoidable command. All right. So last week we left Paul in Athens uh, without Silas and Timothy. Uh, He had to go on ahead of them because his life was in danger back there in Berea. So Paul's kind of on the run uh, from the persecution that keeps extending out from Macedonia. Um, Verse 16 says, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him. And the Greek word for provoked there is uh, the Greek word we get our English word paroxysm from. Um, so apparently Paul was pretty upset uh, as he saw that the city was full of idols. And indeed, if you had been able to visit ancient Athens, you would certainly have been struck by the huge numbers of temples of all kinds Um to all kinds of ancient gods and goddesses that were just everywhere. Uh, And the ruins today uh, give us just a taste of what it must have been like in its prime. But Athens was known not only for its magnificent buildings, statues, things like this. It was particularly known for its philosophers, which took the idolatry of Athens to a different Level, a more sophisticated uh, level for intellectual. Um, Luke mentions two groups, two major groups of philosophers in particular that Paul was interacting with here at Athens the Epicureans and the Stoics. Um, Unfortunately, sometimes those two philosophies are kind of oversimplified and get explained in a way that's not exactly accurate. Um, For example, people often note that the Epicureans. Major value was living with as much pleasure and as little pain as possible. And so some people assume that they must have been uh, just very self indulgent and just partying all the time or something like this. Um, Actually, that's not true. Uh, Epicureans recognize that kind of approach to life ultimately causes more pain. And so they they advocate a more moderate, kind of temperate, kind of life, kind of common sense kind of lifestyle. as far as the Greek gods were concerned, the Epicureans accepted that they existed, but they, they, they uh, didn't really view them as actively involved in the daily lives of human beings. And one really important part of the Epicurean philosophy, for the purposes of this passage, is that they believe that when you die, you cease to exist. That's, that's the end. A lot of Greeks believed in the immortality of the soul. The Epicureans did not. Death is the end. In fact, there was one Epicurean quoted by uh, commentator Ben Witherington um, that has had this motto Nothing to fear in God, nothing to feel in death. Nothing to fear in God, nothing to feel in death. It's one of the philosophies Paul is confronting in the city. Does that sound familiar? You're not going to find pure Epicureans in American culture today. Um, at least not very many. Probably pretty peculiar if there are. But you're going to find people whose life philosophy is nothing to fear in God, nothing to feel in death. What kind of life is that going to lead to? The Stoics uh, were different in some, kind of, in some ways. Um, for instance, instead of seeing the gods as really far away, the, the, the Stoics... Um, thought of divinity in kind of an abstract way, kind of permeating the whole world. So if if the Epicureans, the gods are far away, for the Stoics, God was in everything. Um, But I wonder if you can see how both of those paths kind of end up in a similar place. Practically, whichever path you choose, here is what you don't get. Here's what you don't get. What you don't get is a personal God who is separate from us, against the Stoics, but also cares what we do and is placed to call upon our lives to obedience and loyalty and even love, contrary to the Epicureans. So here comes Paul and he's interacting with both of these groups and he's preaching to them Jesus and the resurrection. Jesus and the resurrection and all of that involves, that just denies on so many levels those philosophies I've just been describing to you. Now some people don't take this take him very seriously at all. They call him a, a babbler. Um, some people did take him seriously, but they didn't like what they heard. Um, there's more than one writer who points out that that's this idea of preaching foreign divinities that they say he's doing, um, that's one of the charges that led to Socrates getting executed. Uh, if you remember the story of, of the death of Socrates um, many years before. There's this... Tension then in the text, uh, especially after everything that Paul's just been through in uh, Thessalonica and Berea, not to mention in his first missionary journey, there's a sense of danger. And it's heightened in verse 19 where it says that they took him and brought him to the Areopagus. The Greek word there makes it sound almost like an arrest. Now, he's, he's never imprisoned in Athens, his life is never directly threatened. But I think that we could at least say there's a sense in which Paul and the gospel are on trial here, at the very least. In the court of public opinion, in a city whose opinion, uh, from a human point of view, really matters on matters of philosophy and religion. What people in Athens thought would have counted for a great deal in the minds of many. The people of Athens are curious then may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? And uh, they say, You're bringing some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. And uh, Luke editorializes. And you can hear him kind of smiling slightly when he says, now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. They've accused Paul of being a babbler. Well, it seems that temples and statues um, weren't the only form of idolatry in Athens then. Those were the outward forms, the obvious visible forms, but in a very real sense, Philosophy was an idol for Athens. What was happening in that concrete form in the temples and the altars and the statues that you could see and touch was happening in this more abstract intellectual way as these different groups of thinkers went back and forth trying to trying to get at the true nature of things, trying to figure out what a virtuous, well-lived life ought to look like. But see, philosophy can be every bit as idolatrous As an altar, if it's a philosophy that's constructed without reference to the Lord and his revelation. And so it is really both kinds of idolatry that Paul is about to confront in his speech here before the Areopagus. And by the way, the Areopagus you should think of as a group of people uh, rather than a place. There was a place called the Areopagus um, but Luke is referring to the group of people here, a sort of public assembly. And he says, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Interestingly, the term religious there is a kind of an ambiguous term. It can mean religious or pious. It can also have the meaning of superstitious. So right off the bat, Paul is uh, possibly kind of using a little bit of a double meaning here to do two things that he's going to consistently do throughout the speech. To connect with his audience, but at the same time, to critique them at every point, And to point them in a direction that so far they have not been looking. And that's really um, the what I'm getting at in the second heading, a point of contact. So here you have Paul, an ethnically Jewish man from a culture that's steeped in uh, monotheism, belief in one God for thousands of years, and he's trying to communicate to a group of Greeks with a very different frame of reference. And you might think, well, this is just going to be hopeless. They're just going to talk past each other. Can there really be any hope of a kind of meeting of the minds between these two very different cultures and and kinds of people and uh, religious backgrounds? But you see, Paul knows something that these Athenians do not know. Paul knows that there is in fact something that he and these Athenians share in common, and that is this, that they both live in God's world. They both live in God's world. They are both surrounded by God's revelation through the things that he has made. And so whether the Athenians recognize that or not, whether they admit it or not, Paul knows that is the point of contact between me and them. And sure, their culture, their religion, their philosophy are leagues away from where I'm coming from, from the truth. But we all live in God's world. And by the way, that should give you something. Uh, that should That is something that should give you great confidence when you are interacting with non-Christians, whether that's face-to-face in a relationship and conversation or, or if it's just in the world of ideas and interacting with... Uh, media and current events and thinking about the many voices swirling around. What you should remember as a Christian is that Christians always have home field advantage in the public square, in the great debate, in the marketplace of ideas, whatever you want to call it. We always have home field advantage. Why? Because we are living in God's world. And it should be no surprise that it is God's word then which ends up providing the most stable the most satisfactory place to stand uh, intellectually and morally and so on. C.S. Lewis once said that, I believe in Christianity for the same reason I believe the uh, the sun has risen, not because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. It is God's word that shines a light on the rest of the world causing it to make sense in a way nothing else does because there's a match there. It is God's world. and only stands to reason that it is God's word that would make sense of it. Well, Paul uh, recognizes this. He, and I want to see here how he uses that home field advantage um, to, to, to seek to communicate the gospel message. Of course, that's Paul's priority, Right? He's, he's, his priority is not to win in debate. His priority is to proclaim Christ and him crucified and raised from the dead to this new audience and think, how can I get it across to them? How can I persuade these people to embrace the gospel for themselves? He says, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. and In particular, he noticed an altar with the inscription, to the unknown God. And Listen to how Paul begins to break the conversation open then. What therefore you worship as unknown, I proclaim This I proclaim to you. This I proclaim to you. Okay, now, uh, there's a a misstep we could make here in trying to understand what what Paul's doing. Here's what Paul's not doing. He's not saying, we worship basically the same God. There's our point of contact. We've been worshiping the same God all along. No, no, no. Paul wouldn't have any time for that kind of nonsense that we're... the sort of thinking that all religious roads lead to the same place. No, he's, he's actually teaching quite the opposite of that. Um, here's what he is doing, though. He's using that altar to an unknown god as a symbol that kind of represents their whole system of pagan idolatry. All of the temples, all of the altars are reaching out in ignorance, ignorantly into the dark. Because they've gone about the whole pursuit of knowing God in a fundamentally wrong way. He says, uh, the God who made the world and everything in it, that kind of God, a creator God, just think about it. He wouldn't live in places like this, would he? If there is such a God, he wouldn't live in temples, he wouldn't need human beings to provide for his needs. Because he's the one who gives everything to us. He's the source of everything that we need in our lives. And, uh, in verses 26 to 27, he says, there's one God who made all the different groups of people that make up the world. And we all have this in common. For all of that great diversity of these different nations God has put in different places, we are all created for the same purpose, and that is to seek for and to find God. We have been created to be Godwardly oriented creatures. We are designed for a God-centered life. We're not living a God-centered life. We're living contrary to our, our makeup. There's going to be chaos in our lives because we're not living the way we're designed. We come from him. We belong to him. And we're supposed to be seeking him. Okay, think about how this is affecting the Epicureans listening. Well, unlike you Epicureans believe, then... I'm elaborating, obviously, on what, what's being implied here by what Paul's saying. So, contrary to you Epicureans, the fact is God is not far away and inaccessible and hard to, uh, you know, never interacting with human beings. Here, he actually quotes from a couple of Greek poets who are indicating the opposite direction. In him, originally referring to Zeus, um, but of course, Paul is uh, taking this and giving it new meaning. <laughs> In him, we live and move and have our being. He said, this is what you've said about your own gods. they are not far away. They're very intimately involved with human life. Now, if you're a Stoic, they might say, yeah, that's right. We're all just part of God. Or God is in all of us. Well, you might think, okay, um, if you're a Stoic, that, that Paul's on our side. But remember, he's also presented God as someone who is outside of us. Someone who is other than us but who is calling us into a relationship with him. He's separate from us, but he wants to have communion with us. He wants to seek after him and find him. See, Paul is taking language they're familiar with, but he's, he's imbuing it with, no, with new meaning. Uh, someone once said, I can't remember the source of this, um, there's a saying about taking what is unfamiliar and making it familiar but also taking what is familiar and making it unfamiliar. That's what Paul is doing. He's, he's taking what's unfamiliar, the gospel, and he's making it familiar using the language of their own poetry uh, to help them understand it. But he's, also, what's taking, he's t- also taking what's familiar to them, which is the way they would describe the gods, and, he, and he's making it unfamiliar. He's taking that familiar language, but he's giving it new unfamiliar content. And both of those things together are helping him to teach them a, a new way of thinking about God. Um, Again, this is different from saying your God, Zeus, and my God are basically the same thing. On the contrary, what he's doing is he's trying to draw out these inescapable truths about the true God that he has placed indelibly on the world that he has made. And they cannot help noticing them because they're everywhere, including in their own hearts. What he's trying to do, he's trying to show how there are glimmers of that truth shining through in their culture, very much obscured. But that the raw materials that they have worked with to create their own idolatry are the raw materials of the true God's creation. And this leads finally to Paul's conclusion. Look at what Paul is doing in verse 29. If... These things are true. If this is really what God is like, if God is the creator of the world, if he's the source of everything in our lives, can't you see how inconsistent it is, how self-contradictory within your own way of looking at the world, to treat him as though we can work backwards and create him, essentially. That's what idolatry is trying to do. And Paul's trying to point out the absurdity of this. Your own poets say that we're his offspring. But idols are our offspring. Idols are things that we make. They don't create us, we create them. In that section about people being idol factories, Calvin goes on to say later, the mind begets an idol, the hand gives it birth. And Paul's trying to show the the internal contradiction within this Greek way of looking at the world. On the one hand, there's an acknowledgement of these higher beings we call the gods, But then when they go on to try to relate to those higher beings, they turn everything upside down by making up the so-called gods themselves, manufacturing them, um, turning those so-called gods into creatures through the very act of idol-making. This whole uh, line of reasoning is very much along the lines of what Paul uh, says in Romans chapter 1, a familiar passage where Paul says that all people know God by nature, because he has revealed himself clearly in the things that are made. But then Paul goes on to say, what do we do naturally? What we naturally do is we naturally suppress that truth about God. We try to hold it down and not acknowledge it. We exchange that truth of God for a lie and worship and serve creatures rather than the creator. That's Romans 1. So Paul's strategy then here, as he's putting that theory into practice in the evangelistic setting, uh, in an apologetic setting, is his, his strategy is to show how the Athenians are trying to live by two principles that cannot both be true. That there is a God or gods out there who made us, and in some sense rule over us. But that to relate to them, we have to make images of them. We have to provide the service they need. We have to provide all these temples and altars to, to satisfy them. And it doesn't make sense. There's an internal contradiction. And instead, Paul says, I'm here to tell you a better way. A way that does make integral sense of reality that really does hang together. Give a satisfying accounting of the way things really are. And that brings us to number three, an unavoidable command. The times of ignorance, Paul says, God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. It's interesting, Paul doesn't, in this particular gospel call, Paul does not offer the forgiveness of sins through faith. This gospel call focuses on the command to repent. He is asserting presenting to these people the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ confronting them with their duty to bow the knee God is not far away you Epicureans he is near he's active in the world he has authority over you to command you to command you to turn from your idolatry both the statue variety and the philosophy variety just the, just both the rank paganism and the kind of intellectual sophisticated version of you're to turn not just from the goddess of wisdom athena the city was named after but you're to turn from the god that you've made your own wisdom itself into your your idolatrous pursuit of pleasure as the ultimate good and you're to relate to the true god now through the mediator the one man that he has appointed to judge the world and you stoics you stoics you have to understand that while god is indeed close He is not you, you are not he, and he stands apart from you, and he is telling you from outside, from a transcendent place of authority, that you must change, you cannot continue going about things the way you are, or you will be judged. Now if we had a lot more time, we could explore a great deal more of the overlap and the differences between the culture Paul is addressing and our own cultures, fodder here for many hours of study um, regarding how to bring the gospel into a secular culture that thinks of itself as very intellectual and wise and for which the gospel of Christ is increasingly like a foreign language. Not something that people are generally familiar with as maybe would have been true a generation or two ago. Not having time to go into all that detail, I want to just leave you with three points of application today. One for each of the headings that we've covered. So, a little bit of review here. And they would be these. First is this. You and I still live in an idol loving culture. I-D-O-L. I-D-L-E would also be true. um, But that's a different story. I mean, it's one of our idols. But uh, I-D-O-L loving culture. Most people in the Western world don't make little statues anymore. Some people do. Um, It's not extinct by any means. Um, But that's not the kind of idol I'm mainly talking about. You know this. Human nature is still, as it always has been, a perpetual factory of idols. And our culture is more like ancient Athens than perhaps um, any of us would like to admit. Especially because even we as God's people are tempted constantly to share, to take part in those um, soft, more kind of abstract idols of of the intellect, of pleasure and comfort and ease and success and recognition. Um, Even of like relational connection can be an idol. We make that an ultimate thing that we have to have to make us happy. Power is an idol we can have. These are the things that the people around us in a broader culture are devoting themselves to and sacrificing themselves and the things and the people that they love in order to achieve those goals. Many of them good things in their proper place. but They've been elevated to the objective for my life. The thing that's most important to me and that I will sacrifice anything for and that I'm most afraid of losing in all the world. And it's so easy to be sucked in through evil desire, through fear of loss. The first step to reaching, like Paul, the culture that we find ourselves in, is to recognize, as he did, the idols of our day and to ask the Lord that they might provoke us like they did Paul, rather than allure us as they so often do in our weakness. You and I still live in an idol-loving culture. Second application is more encouraging, which is that you and I still enjoy home-field advantage in the spiritual warfare between truth and falsehood. We and non-Christians all live in God's world. It still is God's world. And so... This is important for thinking about how you interact with non-Christians. Your goal is not to get to some sort of neutral level playing field, to kind of check your Christianity at the door and somehow start from scratch on neutral ground so you can kind of reason them to the truth. As soon as you've done that, you've actually adopted their worldview. Paul's speech here suggests a different and better and ultimately kinder approach, which is to show people gently the contradiction within the things that they believe and to point out to them that the idols that they're devoting themselves to and counting on can't really help you if you're the one who actually made those idols for yourself and to show people that absurdity of relying on things that they've created for themselves. You can also help them to recognize that the the, the elements of truth that they, that they already admit are imprinted on their hearts, are imprinted all over the world by the Lord, that they are depending on Him for the raw materials they've used to create their idols. And then finally, to be able to show people how those elements of truth that they have embraced contradict other aspects of their idolatry, their other basic commitments in life. Just take a really simple example. We both agree that murder is wrong, but how can your perspective that there is no God or that people can make up morality for themselves, that um, moral standards are are relative and things like this, how can you account for the, the basic knowledge that we both share that these things are wrong? I'm not telling you that it's not wrong. I'm telling you that Christianity can account for that moral judgment, that moral reality, in a way that your claims cannot. That's showing that internal contradiction. Okay, so you and I still live in an idol-loving culture. You and I still enjoy home-field advantage. Finally, you and I still live in a world that Christ is coming to judge. When some people heard Paul's message, they mocked. Resurrection, yeah, right. Everybody knows that death is a one-way street. The warning of the final judgment did them no good. They ignored it, but that didn't make it go away. That didn't make the judgment go away. Other people put Paul off. They said, we will hear you again about this. Who knows if they ever did. But this is the same thing. Putting off the judgment. Putting off thinking about the judgment also doesn't make it go away. Still others, though, joined him. Still others bowed the knee to the Lord Jesus. They embraced this Christ, crucified for the forgiveness of sins and raised from the dead and reigning at God's right hand and one day coming again. And they found life and they found joy and they found peace in him because it's the only place that those things ultimately can be found. You and I still live in a world that Christ Is coming to judge. But we also still live in a world where He is still the Savior. And He commands all of us this day, as urgently as He did the people of Athens on that day, to turn to Him and bow the knee and live. Let's pray. Our God, we confess that As much as our contemporaries, we have hearts that are prone to make new idols for ourselves, ultimate commitments, things that we'll devote ourselves to and make sacrifices for that we treat as most important in our lives and set ahead of you or beside you. And Lord, this is a great evil. We thank you that you have rescued us ultimately from the power of our idols and that you are working powerfully through the Holy Spirit to uh, free us from their grip. We pray that you would do so more and more. And we pray that you would equip us to bring that freedom into the lives of others by showing them the contradictions within the way they see the world and also to see the goodness that is to be found in seeing the world as you have really made it and seeing you for who you really are. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.